Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. We're uh, uh, finishing up with the uh, series uh, on Romans. We've been going through chapter by chapter. We've covered, I'm surprised that we've made it, but we've covered a chapter a week. Uh, so this is our 15th week in this series. And uh, unless something happens where I fail to get through this one, we'll uh, continue along that pattern. Chapter 15 is, uh, is really Paul finishing up the uh, instruction that he uh, uh, gives by the Holy Ghost to the Roman church. There's 16 chapters in the book of Romans, but the last one is just him identifying certain people and um, salutations and certain things like that. So the, the, the meat of the, um, uh, the book ends at the last of chapter 15. Chapter 15 is really three sections. The, um, uh, the translators, um, I think for lack of a better explanation, just for the sake of size, continued from chapter 14 into chapter 15 to the first seven verses. Then Paul talks about the ministry of Jesus, and then he talks about his own ministry and his ministry plans. And those make up the three sections of chapter 15. I'm going to read, uh, starting in chapter 15, the first three verses, um, because they, they relate specifically to the things uh, that Paul was talking about in chapter 14. You may remember in chapter 14 he started off and uh, uh, instructing the church that there are going to be strong believers uh, and then there are going to be weak believers and strong believers have a responsibility for the weak. Now, the weakness he's talking about is a lack of understanding about our liberty in Christ, holding on to the law of Moses, holding on to, to feast days and, and certain dietary restrictions of the Old Testament and so forth. So in chapter 15, verse 1, he said, We then that are strong, the word strong is the word powerful. It comes from the root word dunamis. This translated power throughout the New Testament. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. The word please is interesting because it means to be agreeable. And again, where he's talking about not pleasing yourself, he's not talking about don't do the things that you want to do. He's talking about be agreeable with those that don't know as much as you do. Be agreeable with those that have a, a different opinion about Christian life and our Christian walk than you do. And... Uh, as the, we used the example last week, it's like a, a parent walking with a child. The parent doesn't berate the child because he's slow. The parent doesn't criticize the child because of the shortness of his steps or the speed that he's walking or any other reason. He just takes his time and goes slower for the sake of the child. Well, that's similar to the responsibility Paul says that uh, strong believers have toward weak believers. So he says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Now, the, um, remember in chapter 13, Paul wrote to the church and said in verse 8, he said, no, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Literally, that means it's not talking about don't, not going into debt. It's saying that we should pay our bills don't, be a, uh, don't bring a reproach or a bad report upon the church by being somebody that skips out on money that you owe. But he's saying simply this, pay your bills but re and realize there's one debt that you never can repay, and that's to love one another. Now, that's the same theme that he's bringing over in chapter 15 when he talks about walking, uh, having a responsibility, the strong believers having a responsibility toward the weaker believers because we owe them a debt of love. That's the whole point that he's trying to make. And he's saying, therefore, that we ought to be agreeable. In other words, instead of trying to fix and correct everybody's thinking, 
we ought to be agreeable and realize that God loves them just as much as he loves us and people are growing at different levels and at different rates. I found that, um, that the Proverbs are true where it says the sweetness of the lips increases learning. I found that the people that try to bully other people into, into growing up and, and thinking like they think or believing like they believe have very, very little success. But if you'll be gentle with people, then they'll, eventually they'll see it. Maybe not overnight, but they'll come to see it. That's the point Paul's trying to make. So he says in verse 4, For whosoever or whatsoever things were written aforetime were written. Now those things that were written aforetime, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. Those things that were written aforetime or beforetime literally were written for our learning, literally instruction, that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now notice the progression that he's using. He's saying this is what the Bible is about. This is what the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets were about through our instruction, through learning the things that it was trying to teach us, not just the laws and the regulations and so forth, but the purpose for these things. Through our learning that we through patience, cheerful endurance, constancy, and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Notice what brings you hope. Patience and the comfort of the scriptures. Now, the God of patience and consolation, the word consolation is the same word comfort in the previous verse. He says, now the God of patience and comfort grants you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if you'll exercise yourself to be patient toward other people and just let the word of God do the work, be comforted in the word of God, not what you see around you or see in other people or are disappointed about what you see in other people, he says, God will help you out. It's a means of being led by the Spirit of God. Because remember, when Paul talked about being led by the Spirit of God in Romans chapter 14, he's talking about our behavior toward one another. It applies in every area, and we talk about being led by the Spirit of God in other ways and renewing our mind to other things, the truth of the Word in every area and so forth. But the context that Paul spoke about these things was in our behavior toward one another. So he says, if you'll exercise in your, yourself in that way, God will help you. God is the God of patience and comfort. In order to be like-minded toward one another according or according to the example, literally, after the example of Jesus Christ, that you, both weak Christians and strong Christians, may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he wrote to the Corinthians? He said, I've heard different things about you. I've taught you and I was your spiritual father and I laid the foundation and Apollos come, came and he watered the word and, and so forth. But remember what he said? He said, I hear that there are divisions among you. Schisms is the word that the Bible uses. Divisions among you. So that some are saying I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and, and maybe others as well. He said, who are any of us but Jesus who gave his life for you? In other words, what he's saying is divisions in the church will destroy things. No church had the trouble that the Corinthian church had and no church had the divisions that they had. In fact, it's the only church that we can't prove for sure lasted past one generation. I'm, when I say a church, the only church we can't prove, I mean, I'm talking about the churches that Paul established. It's the only church we don't know for sure lasted past one generation. Is that a coincidence? The Holy Ghost doesn't seem to indicate so. 
It seems to indicate that if we'll go away with our own thinking about what somebody else believes or what they should believe or how they should believe or how they should operate and let God deal with them because they're his servant, not ours, then there'll be peace and the things of God, the body of Christ will be edified. That's the point he's making. That's the overall point he's making. Wherefore, verse 7, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I'm going to go back to chapter 14 and read verse 1 where he started this passage and and this uh, uh, idea, instruction about the responsibility of strong believers toward weak believers. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. That means to accept as an equal just like Jesus accepted you. You ever thought about that? Jesus didn't wait for you to get cleaned up before he accepted you into the family of God. He didn't wait for you to get your thinking straightened out before he accepted you in the family of God. In fact, he made you a new creature in Christ Jesus and then gave you instruction to say, here's the word that will transform your, your, your life through the renewing of your mind. But he doesn't kick you out if you don't renew your mind. He doesn't come down on you. He doesn't curse you. He doesn't make bad things happen to you if you, if you fail to act on the word of God and the instruction that he gives us to renew our mind to the word, does he? Of course not. Well, in the same way that he receives us and is so, so, so patient year after year after year with many of us, says in the same way, receive others. So him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. In other words, not to try to correct somebody's thinkings or opinions. Again, chapter 15, verse 7, wherefore receive ye. All of this has started, uh, come full circle, back to the place it starts. Wherefore, for this reason... Receive ye, except as an equal, one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now he's going to start the second section where he's talking about Jesus' ministry. And this is interesting because it sets up, not only does it give us some interesting information, but it sets up the things that he's going to tell us about his ministry, Paul's ministry. Verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. means a minister to the Jews. For the truth of God... To confirm the promises made unto the fathers and. He gives two reasons that Jesus was a a minister or sent to the the Jews first. To confirm the truth of God to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those that were um, the beginners, the the progenitors. Is that the word I'm looking for? Anyway, Anyway, the forefathers of the Jews. That the, he was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And here's the second reason that Jesus was sent to the Jews. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now why would Jesus be sent to the Jews if, he's the, per, if the secondary purpose is that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. To see what God did for the Jews. Folks, it was known worldwide, maybe in that day more than it is now, about the historical Events that we realize and recognize in the Bible and read uh, in our Bibles. It's thought today to be fables. They were known in Paul's day to be truth. They were a part of the, the, the history, the oral history and the oral tradition of every culture. That this God of the Jews, the God of Israel, parted seas, brought down fire from heaven rained hailstones on their enemies and different things like that, earthquakes and different things to swallow people up. These things were told widely and and were very widespread in the stories. So the purpose, Paul is saying, 
that everybody knew about these things is so the Gentiles would glorify God. Now think about it from God's standpoint. If the God of Israel, who's done all these great things for Israel throughout, the, throughout their history for hundreds of years, is now available to the Gentiles, and all you have to do is accept his son Jesus and his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice as the payment for your sins, shouldn't that, uh, um, you know, taking away any outside hindrance or distractions or whatever, shouldn't that be good news for people? Well, it is good news for people. Irrespective of, of hindrances or, or distractions or whatever. And that's the whole point. Not only that the Jews would see that he's confirmed the truth of the word and the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also that the Gentiles would realize, wow, this is a God that's not just the God of the, the, the Jews, not just the God of Israel. He's the God for anybody that will accept Jesus as their sacrifice. So the second reason is, is then that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, Paul's going to give four uh, scriptural references from the Old Testament. First one's from the Psalms, second one's from the law in Deuteronomy 32, I think it is. The third one's from the Psalms again, and the fourth one is from Isaiah. He puts two scriptures together from Isaiah, kind of combines them together. So he's telling us from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms that God's plan was for the Gentiles all along to come into his family. Now, who's he writing this to? Is he writing this to Jews? Well, there are some Jewish Christians, but by and large, he's writing to a Gentile church. So he's trying to instruct them and show them that this was God's plan all along. This is not something that happened because the Jews rejected Jesus. This was always God's plan. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him or exalt him. All ye people. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. In other words, Paul is saying, God told the Jews from the very beginning that it was about the Gentiles too. There was a time when it was the Jews versus the Gentiles, but Jesus broke down that middle wall of partition. Now it's Jews and Gentiles both equally accepted into the kingdom of God. In Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile as far as God is concerned. Now, this is the sticking point, and this is the reason why Paul is enduring the persecution that he experienced in his ministry, because the Jews wouldn't accept the Gentiles into the church apart from the law. Now, if the Gentiles wanted to keep the law of Moses and then confess Jesus, then yeah, sure, let them into the church. I'm talking about the, the Christians that were Jews. There were unsaved Jews they didn't want anything to do with Jesus one way or the other, but they'd still allow Gentile proselytes as long as they were willing to keep the law of Moses. And Paul is saying to the church, certainly the world wouldn't accept it, the unsaved Jews wouldn't accept it, the high priests and so forth, the Sanhedrin and others wouldn't accept it. But the reality is that it was God's plan from the beginning. God didn't change his mind. This was always the plan. Why didn't the Jews see the plan from early on? Because they didn't want to. They were just as blind as we are about some things. We get our minds made up about what we think, and we fail to see the truth in many cases. Verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of, our, of the Holy Ghost. Now I'm going to bring you back to a previous scripture where he talked about hope. Um, where is it? Verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, 
were written for our learning, instruction, that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And then he calls him the God of patience and comfort. Now, the progression leads us to the place where we have hope. Paul says, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Where did joy and peace come from? Through believing. That you may abound in hope. Where does hope come from? It comes from believing God through his word. And then what happens? Through the power of the Holy Ghost. Notice how these things are connected as far as Paul is concerned. Notice how the Holy Ghost inspires him to put these things together. You find Christians that aren't walking in joy and peace. It's because they're not believing the word. You find Christians that are absent from the Holy Ghost. Or the power of the Holy Ghost is not prevalent in their lives. It's because they're not believing the word. Paul puts these things together and shows us. If you want hope. If you want the, the, uh, the hopefulness that God expects his people to live in, it comes one and only one way, and that's through believing. Another thing that's interesting about this is the Holy Ghost will give you power to hope. One of the interesting characteristics of the Old Testament heroes of faith, you can't find one of them that did anything for God that was hopeless. You can find a couple that lost their hope along the way, and God had to restore it. But nobody ever did anything for God that had lost their hope in any way whatsoever. Hope is one of the three things that the Bible says are eternal. These three things will last, faith, hope, and love. I think a lot of times we talk about faith because we're faith people. At least we think we are. We try to be. Then we talk a lot about love because love is so important. Walking in love is the foundation for us receiving from God and so forth. But very often we leave hope out on the, the doorstep. But hope is one of the most important things as far as God's concerned. And that's the very thing that the devil wants to destroy. When he tries to steal your faith, he's really stealing your hope. And the only way he can get you to turn loose of your faith is to destroy your hope. Nobody ever stopped confessing or believing, confessing the word or believing God's promise. Except that they first lost their hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you don't have hope, you don't have any basis for faith. God wants you to be the most hopeful person in the, on the planet. What brings us hope? The knowledge of what he said in his word. That's why it's the basis for faith. The basis of what to believe comes from our hope that's generated by the word. That's the way that God restored Abraham's hope when he had lost the vision, lost sight of the vision of having a child when he was about 100 years old. God restored his hope. He gave him Specific information about the promise. He said at this time, at this set time next year, Sarah will have a son. And from that point, Abraham's hope was restored and everything was back on. We don't know how long he had lost that hope. We don't know how long he had stopped being in faith. But as soon as he got the information from the Lord, his hope was restored. And man, he was full speed ahead when it came to believing God. And that faith is what is the example that's used for us all. Verse 14, and I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. In other words, he's saying, you really didn't need me to tell you these things. You are able to teach one another. He promotes the idea, suggests the idea that they're spiritual enough to know these things to be true without him saying so. But nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort or part, 
as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. Now, the grace that he's talking about here, and a lot of times grace is used in different, different ways. Paul is specifically going to identify that the grace that's given unto him is the ministry that God has placed him in, the office of the apostle that he is or that he holds. And where he's talking about, nevertheless, brethren, I put you in remembrance of these things, things that you already know. Well, I'm sure Paul's being charitable here. He told them a lot of things they didn't know. But it doesn't go over real well to say, now, I know you didn't know any of this stuff because you're dumb as a rock. And that's why I wrote this stuff. Now, instead, he, can, he commends them. He brags on them a little bit. And he says, now, I know you guys know these things. I know that these things make sense to you, and you are able to teach one another without me saying so. But I said what I did and was instructed to do so because of the office that I hold in the body of Christ. Now, he's going to start talking about that in a little bit. Verse 16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, he uses the same comparison that just like Jesus was the minister of the circumcision or to the circumcision of the truth of God for the two reasons he mentions, to fulfill the promises made to the forefathers and that the Gentiles should trust in his name. He said, in the same way, the grace of God is given to me, we know as an apostle, that he should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, I got to tell you something. If you take that verse of Scripture apart, Paul is talking about himself pretty highly. Yet this is the same group that he said, don't, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Well, is, is he violating the instruction that the Holy Ghost gave him to, to, to teach or to instruct the Romans? Or anybody else? No. He knows who he is. And even if he denies it, he is who he is. So he doesn't even try to deny it. He simply says, God has made me the minister of the Gentiles to offer them up so that they can be sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Paul knows exactly the place that he holds in the history of the church world. And he doesn't hold back from saying so. Now, I'm sure just in Paul's day, like maybe there are in... in our present day there might be people around that are saying well who does this guy think he is well he thinks he's exactly who jesus has made him to be now whether that offends somebody or not and i'm sure they were offended there were people that were offended this church has been going for some time paul's never been there they didn't need him to get started they didn't need him to to progress to the point that he's just committed them for for holding i'm sure there are a lot of people that are saying well who is this guy and who does he think he is well who he is is an apostle of the, first, of the first order. Placed there by the Lord Jesus himself. To bring the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. He knows exactly what his mission is. He knows exactly what he's empowered to do. I have therefore whereof I may glory. That means to be glad or to boast in. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ. In those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak. Literally take any credit for any of those things which Christ has not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. So what has uh, Paul's ministry, whatever fruit there is of Paul's ministry, what was the purpose of it? To make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. So what did Jesus do to make that happen? Verse 19, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, folks, you ever heard uh, uh, the term full gospel? You know where that comes from? 
comes from this verse of scripture. Paul saying, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So back in 1914, when they started, when they founded the Assembly of God organization, they founded themselves as a full gospel organization. What does that mean? That means they believe in the power of the Holy Ghost. Because Paul, if he's to be believed, is saying that the full preaching of the gospel of Christ includes mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, you can put your own definition on that or your own uh, explanation of that if you like and say that you can preach the full gospel of Christ without signs and wonders, but Paul said otherwise. And if Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost, then we have to conclude that the Holy Ghost said otherwise. In other words, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, as far as God is in, had, uh, intended for it to be preached, is with signs and wonders. It's in the power of the Holy Ghost. The church made a terrible mistake by getting away from those things. I understand the progression that takes place. I understand why people would do so. They don't get some of the signs and wonders that they thought they should have. And so then they start making excuses and explanations for why they don't. And once you start doing that, forget seeing the power of God ever again. There are no excuses to be made. Even if we're not experiencing what the Bible says is ours, we should take the position that, well, we are still learning how to operate and how to work and cooperate with the Holy Ghost. But the gospel of Jesus is to be preached with signs and wonders. To do otherwise is to take away from the word, take away from the gospel. So Paul said, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, that's basically Asia, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named. Now, now hold this in your mind. I want you to notice this. We're going to come back to this regarding some things he's going to say in a few moments. He's saying, yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. In other words, Paul says, I don't want to go to any city that's already heard about Jesus. I certainly don't want to build on some other person's preaching about Jesus. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. I want you to notice over and over and over again, Paul identifies his ministry through the word. He found himself in the word of God. And the Holy Ghost gave us a record of him finding himself in the, in the word of God. If you go back to Paul's original ministry and um, uh, his uh, first missionary journeys and so forth, he gets to a certain place and the Jews, he starts preaching in the synagogue. And that was his practice. He'd go to a town and start preaching in the Jewish synagogue and get a couple of people saved. And then the Jews would finally reject it and say, no, we don't want anything to do with this. First time that happened, Paul quoted Isaiah and said, okay, seeing that you count yourself unworthy of the blood of Jesus, I'll go to the Gentiles because it is written. And then he talks about the light of God coming to the Gentiles. Even from the beginning, before Paul ever set out on his first missionary journey, he knew who he was from the word. If there is any pattern that you can follow, that's it. Find yourself in the word. Paul didn't find himself by what he thought about himself. In fact, he found out through his Christian walk that he's going to be impressed or uh, he's going to be uh, pressured by the enemy to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's the whole reason he wrote to us and said, don't do that. How do you think he found these things out? 
Because he realized how the devil came against him. He realized that the devil came against his thought life to try to make him think about himself differently than what the Bible says. Tried to make him think differently about circumstances and situations and even God than what the Bible says. So he came back to this to the, the, the baseline of always accepting the word of God to be true no matter whatever else uh, other thought might come to his mind. So he finds himself in the word from the very beginning. And it never ends. Throughout the end of Paul's ministry, he's still talking about who he is in the word. And what God has given him to do from the word of God. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. Now can I ask you a question? Should everybody find themselves in that scripture? Well, if so, then nobody's going to stay home and pastor. Nobody's going to stay where people have been saved and teach them. But Paul found himself because of the impression of the Holy Ghost and the leading of the Holy Ghost and the witness of the Holy Ghost when he was reminded by the Spirit of God of these Old Testament scriptures. And remember, Paul was trained as a rabbi. He had the same training as the high priest. A part of that training is to memorize. Let me say that word again so that you don't don't miss it. Memorize everything that we know of as the Old Testament. So the Holy Ghost had a, a wide range of scriptures to bring to his remembrance and show him how they fit. And in this case, to show him how they fit him. Verse 22. For which cause, because I've been preaching throughout all of Asia, for which cause also I have been much hindered by coming to you. But now having no more place in those parts. Let that sink in. Now I don't have any place in Asia anymore. No more having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whereinsoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I may be somewhat filled with your company. Now, I like this part. I, I, it may not be interesting to some people, but I love this part of Scripture because I like to see how everything ties in together. I don't like to look at the New Testament as just separate letters that are disconnected and disjointed and, you know, Paul wrote this on one occasion and he wrote this on another occasion. There has to be some rhyme or reason. There has to be some logical uh, pattern to the things that Paul wrote and the, the ministry that God gave him. Or else, if, we're, if there's not any logical pattern, then we would be left to jump from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. One thing to another thing, whatever that might be. But I know that's not the way that God deals with me. God deals with me in a logical pattern, uh, a logical way that, that I, even though I might not see it to begin with, turns out to be a pattern. Well, what's Paul's pattern? Notice what Paul said. He said he doesn't have any place in Asia anymore. Hold your finger here. We're going to come back or put something in your Bible to come back. But turn back with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. It talks about Paul being in Ephesus. Uh, It talks about how they got a few people healed, went into the synagogue, verse 8, spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, 
so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now remember what we just read in verse 20 of Romans chapter 15. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. <clears throat> the fact that the Bible tells us that the, during the two and a half to three years that Paul was in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the word. He's just locked himself out of anywhere to preach. He's not going to go to another city in Asia and start another church. He's not out to build a network of churches. He's out to preach Jesus where he's never been preached before. So in that sense, the worst thing for Paul is for the the news to spread. Because now he's locked out of anywhere else to go. And that's what he's saying over in Romans chapter 15. He's saying, I have preached the gospel through mighty signs and wonders so that all of Asia has heard the word. I preached from one end of Asia, starting at Jerusalem to the other end of Asia, ending at Illyricum. And through the mighty signs and wonders, the power of the Holy Ghost, the name of Jesus has been spread to such a degree, I don't have anywhere to go that they haven't heard about Jesus anymore in all of Asia. Now, we'd consider that ministry success. Paul says, now I'm out of a place to preach. So what do we see next? We see that he's looking for somewhere that he hadn't, that the name of Jesus has never gotten, uh, gotten to yet. So what does he say? Chapter 15, verse 24, whensoever I take my journey into Spain. Nobody's been to Spain yet. I'm going to Spain. Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you on my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. At first, I may be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go into Jerusalem. This is back in Romans 15, verse 26, or verse 25, excuse me. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution to the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now, I want you to look with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This um, uh, is an indication. I'm not sure exactly how to describe this, but it's what causes a lot of scholars to believe that Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus because it's in Ephesus that he decides to go back through Macedonia. Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia. And Achaia, and Corinth was one of the main cities of that region, on his way to Jerusalem, and you remember that's when he was going to be bound, when it's witnessed to him in every uh, city that he's going to be bound. Now, in Second Corinthians chapter 8, writing to the Corinthians, he, he writes, Moreover, brethren, we do wit to you wit, we do you to wit, in other words, we want you to know, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is the chief city of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. In other words, even though they're in impoverished conditions, they gave generously in an offering. That's what he's saying. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves unto the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. In other words, he's saying, that's why I sent Titus to you to get the missionary offering going before I arrived. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace, still talking about the offering, 
in this grace also. I speak not by the command, by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. In other words, he's saying, God's not telling me to command you to take an offering. God doesn't do that. But others have spoken so highly of you. They've told me about how you have a great desire to give and you yourselves pledged the gift. So that's why I'm writing these things. And herein, no, no, wait a minute, I skipped some. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He's talking about Jesus doing something on the cross regarding material possessions. Jesus was not poor here on the earth. He had a treasurer with money in it that was being stolen. So you got to have more than a dollar in there if somebody's stealing money out of the treasury. It's got to be enough so that nobody knows. And remember, Judas is stealing from Jews. They kind of keep a close eye on the money, you know. And rightly so. It's not a criticism. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. And herein give I my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so that there may be a performance also out of that which you have. Now that's fancy talk for saying very simply this. When I was with you a year ago, you said that you would take up this offering and you haven't done it yet. It's not enough to say you want to give an offering. Now do something about it. That's what he's saying. Now remember Paul is referring to this in Romans chapter 15. What does he say to the Philippians? This is the Corinthians, the church of Achaia, the major church of Achaia. What about the Philippians, the chief city of Macedonia? Paul told the the Philippians something that he didn't tell any other church, any other group. Because they had already gotten their offering together. They're not waiting for Paul to remind them or encourage them or prod them to do anything. They've already gotten it together. And it's an abundant offering considering the circumstances. We don't know if that means it's a lot of money or if it's just a a sacrifice because they didn't have anything. Could be either. God doesn't look at the amount. He looks at the heart. But he wrote to them in Philippians chapter 4 said, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, everybody takes that scripture for their own. But Paul wrote that to the ones that had already given. A lot of people that aren't givers want to claim Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Okay, I'm not going to try to diminish anybody's faith or deter them from believing God in any way whatsoever. But let's realize the facts. Paul wrote that to the church that was giving. In other words, there was something that they had already done. The work of their hands was already in play so that God could bless it. A lot of people want God to meet their needs when they're not doing anything on their own. When the Bible says give and it'll be given unto you. Do you understand where I'm coming from? So if Paul is in Ephesus when he's writing to the Romans saying the Philippians have already gathered their offering and I want the Romans to do, uh, the Corinthians to do the same thing and then I'm going to bring that to Jerusalem to present it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. They're under persecution and so they're needy. And then after that, I'm going to go to Spain and on the way to, to Spain, I'm going to go to Rome. Now, how does that fit with the other things that we know from the scripture? Look with me to Acts chapter 19 again in verse 21. 
It tells about how the, the, all of Asia had heard the word. It tells about God working special miracles by the hands of Paul in verse 11. So that from his hands were taken to the sick, handkerchiefs and aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits were, went out of them. Then it tells about the seven sons of Siva. You remember the story? The Jewish uh, rabbi or priest or something who had seven sons, and they went and tried to cast the devil out of one person and used the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. You remember the story about how the, the evil spirit in that man leapt on them, beat them up, stripped off their clothes, and they went running down the street. Everybody heard this. Then they really get committed to the things of God. They bring all their curious arts and works and occult stuff that they've been hanging on to and all that stuff and burned it. And then it says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. That's in verse 20. Now, verse 21 tells us what Paul's next plan is. If all of Asia has heard the word. Now, here's why I like this. It get, helps me get into Paul's head. See how things work for him. If Paul realizes that the word of God has done everything that it can do through his ministry or as a result of his ministry, because all of Asia has heard the word, what does he do next? Does he change his ministry? Does he become somebody that just starts going back from church to church to church that that he started before, checking in on people? Is God going to change him from being an apostle, somebody that was sent to new territory? To somebody that's just kind of an overseer now, just a bishop that's going to oversee the things, the works that he's already started. A lot of people would. A lot of people would think, well, look at the financial base I could work from. But what does Paul do? Paul knows what he's called to. What he's called to is to go to places that nobody has ever heard about Jesus before. That's the ministry that God has given them. That's the power of the Holy Ghost that's equipped him, or the work that's power that the Holy Ghost has equipped him to do. So what does he do? He immediately starts looking for where else can I go? Acts 19, verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in his spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. Macedonia would be Philippi, or the region of Philippi. Achaia would be the region of of Corinth. So what's his plan? To go from Ephesus through Philippi, through Corinth, and to Jerusalem. What does he tell us that he's going there for? To take the offering back to the needy saints in Jerusalem. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, here's what Paul thinks about God's plan for him, saying, after I have been there, meaning Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. Now, back to Romans chapter 15, Paul said, verse 22 again, for which cause also, because I've been so busy preaching in Asia, I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts, nobody, nowhere else in Asia, I can't go anywhere in Asia that hadn't heard about Jesus, having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. In other words, you can help me get to Spain. That's what he means, be brought on my way. His final destination is Spain, but he's going to go through Rome to get there. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution to the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It has pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. In other words, he's saying the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia realize that they have a debt that they owe to the Jerusalem saints because that's where everything started. It was from there that the, that the gospel began to be sent out. If it hadn't been sent out from Jerusalem, we never would have heard the gospel. 
It has pleased them verily, and, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles had been made partakers of their spiritual things, the duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come to by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. How does Paul think he's going to arrive in Rome? In chains? No. Acts 19.21 tells us what he knows about God's plan for his life. He knows he's going to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to go to, to Rome. He finds out in every city that he goes to, the Holy Ghost witnesses to him that bonds and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. He gets in chapter 20 and the Bible tells us about the, the um, he gets to Philip's house, Philip the evangelist. Agabus the prophet comes down there and says that the man that owns this girl, he takes the girl and binds his hands. The man that owns this girl will be bound to Jerusalem. And the rest of the company began to try to plead with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul knows that he's got to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. But apparently, now you judge this for yourself, but apparently Paul only understands that he's going to be held in bondage in Jerusalem. He doesn't know that he's going to be taken in chains to Rome. He knows he's going to Rome. He knows God wants him to go to Rome. But his, uh, what he indicates in Romans chapter 15 is that whatever trouble he has in Jerusalem, that'll blow over. He'll get out of jail and then he'll go to Rome. And then after Rome, he'll go to Spain. That's not the way it turns out. So what does that tell us? It tells us you don't always see the end result of God's leading. God doesn't tell you everything about the journey. Now, I don't think that, that it would have had any, made any difference to Paul if Paul had known that he was going to come to Jerusalem in chains. He wouldn't have stopped what he was doing. He wouldn't have changed his course. How many of us can say that? I don't know too many people that I can say with confidence, oh, well, if they knew that, they'd have gone on just like Paul did. Do you? Folks, Paul's a pretty tough guy. Is he supposed to be tougher than we are? Why would God give us an example of Paul's ministry? I'm not saying we all have the same ministry. Certainly we don't. But shouldn't we be as strong and single-minded in what God has given us to do as he was in what God gave him? I believe we should. So Paul's thinking and understanding is he's going to go take the offering to Jerusalem. There's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. But apparently he didn't know that the trouble would extend to Rome. He didn't know he was going to be taken in chains to Caesar. He didn't know he was going to be held up for two years under house arrest in Rome as the book of Acts tells us that he was. He didn't know any of those things. From what we have record of as far as church historical documents are concerned, Paul never did make it to Spain. But he never stops looking for where he can do the next thing to preach the name of Jesus, go to the next place that nobody's heard before. Folks, this fascinates me about this guy. He picks the hard places. We run from hard places. At least most Christians do. Most Christians are believing God not to go to hard places. Paul looked for them. I wonder if that had anything to do with the power of God and demonstration through him as opposed to what we see in the modern day church. Something to consider, huh? Back to verse 28. When therefore I have performed this, in other words, taken the offering to Jerusalem, and have sealed to them this fruit. That's an interesting thing. 
It says the fruit doesn't abound to the account of Corinth and Philippi. When they give it, the fruit is sealed unto them or abounds to their account when the saints receive it. Uh, there's so many people, bless their hearts, there's so many people that think good intentions is what's going to get them by. It's not. The Bible says that the best thing that we can hope to hear from the Lord when we stand before him is well done, good and faithful servant. Not well intended, good and faithful servant. Not I know you meant well, but well done. God's all about having things done. And I know that cuts crossroads with some people's idea of the God of love. Well, God loves us the same if we just mean well. Well, not so much. Well, I'm sorry. He does love us the same, but you don't get the same reward for it. And I'm sure, verse 29, I'm sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Can I ask you a question? Was that fulfilled? When Paul came to Rome, when he finally got to Rome, did he come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ? Yep. Didn't have anything to do with whether he was in chains or under his own free will. Why? Because he's in the will of God. He wasn't doing what suited him. He was following the leading of the Lord. Following what God directs you to do will sometimes lead you into situations you didn't plan on or count, count on, plan for or count on. But it doesn't mean it's not God. Thank God Paul knew that. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. In other words, he's saying, I want you to take on this thing as a prayer project. I want you to take on me as a prayer project. Now, why does Paul need prayer? Well, because you've got unsaved Jews that hate Paul because he's turning people away from the turning Jewish Christians away from uh, getting Jews saved and turning them away from the law of Moses. He's got. Jewish Christians, specifically in Jerusalem, that are sending emissaries out to other sounds and other places where he preaches the gospel, trying to dissuade Gentile believers from thinking that it's just believing in Jesus alone, but trying to instruct them that you've got to keep the law of Moses too. So they want to stop his ministry. Finally, you've got the civil authorities, the Romans, that are trying to curry favor with the Jews, particularly the Jewish high priests and the religious, religious leadership. Because the people, the unsaved people, the unsaved uh, citizens of Israel are ruled and dominated primarily through the high priest and the, the, the priesthood, even in Paul's day. So you've got three different groups that are working against Paul. So what does Paul say? Paul asks the Romans, take me on as a prayer project that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. What's he talking about? He's talking about the high priest and the priesthood, the religious organization that's set up, the Old Testament organization. And that my service which I have from Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Notice Paul said there's a chance that people aren't going to accept the offering that I'm bringing them. Why? Because the Jewish Christians that are still holding on to the law have such an influence over the others that they might reject it out of hand because it comes through Paul. That I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So let me ask you a question. As he closes this thing up, let me ask you a question. Who are the weak believers that he says the strong believers have a responsibility for? We should be able to identify 
who the weak Christians are and who the strong Christians are. Who are the weak ones? The Jews that have come out of legalism. Because their conscience is still affected by the, the legalism and the law of Moses and the do's and the don'ts and the regulations and all the other things that they've grown up with. Who are the strong believers? The Gentiles who don't have any law of Moses to undo in their lives, to forget or to turn away from. They never knew the law of Moses, never was tempted to keep the law of Moses, so they're not bothered about it whatsoever. They readily accept Paul's preaching that all things are lawful in Christ and that we have freedom of liberty because we've been born again and made righteous. Who, are the, who should be the strong Christians? The Jews. Because they've got the history of God working on their behalf if only their eyes were opened to God's intent from the beginning. So in the early days of the church, and I think it's still that way today in, in, to a great degree, the ones that should be strong are the ones that are weak. And the ones that should be weak are really the stronger ones because of their the renewed mind, the acceptance of the truth of the word. Irrespective, Paul says we have responsibility toward the weak believers not to fix them but to accept them as equals. Let God do the work in them. You know, folks, there's a, there's a freedom associated with that. I don't know if you've ever found that or not. I don't know if you've ever been tempted with this or not, but, man, this was a big deal with me. I used to try to fix everybody. I used to preach from a standpoint of, of you need to know this and not only do you need to know it, you need to do it, and if you're not doing it, then we've got a problem. And you know, I was frustrated beyond measure because you can't fix anybody. You can't make anybody believe even the truth. And that frustrated me to no end. And I came to the place where I realized that's not my job to fix everybody. My job is to speak the truth and let people do with it what they want to. And I found it out from Paul because Paul said, I'm free from the blood of any man. I gave you everything I had. I'm free from every man's blood. When he, was right, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, in what he thought at least, we don't know for sure, but what he thought would be the last time that he ever saw them. He said, I'm clean from every man's blood on my hands because I told you everything that I know. Well, why would he say that? Because he knows not everybody accepted what he told them. But that's not his responsibility. And when you come to the place where you stop trying to fix people, Especially, especially the closer they are to you, the more important it is. When you stop trying to fix people and just pray for them, Lord, if you want them fixed, you fix them. If you want me to say something to them, give me the words to say. If you don't give me the words to say, that, that's a sure sign to shut up and keep my mouth shut. There is a freedom in that because it's like there's a little game going on between you and the Lord. You know the truth, and if they would hear it, then you could help them. But if they're not in a position to hear it, don't want to hear it, then your job is to just encourage them. Just love on them anyway. Just accept them as equal. Don't treat them as second class or anything along those lines. There is such a freedom in that. I enjoy pastoring. There was a while, a time, a period of time, that I didn't enjoy pastoring. And I came to realize that the, and remember that Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burdens light. If anything is weighing you down, you're doing your plans instead of his. And I was being weighed down. And I realized that means some way or another, I'm working my plans instead of the Lord's plan. 
And I realized what it was. I'm trying to fix everybody. I'm trying to make everybody strong. I'm trying to force them to be strong. They've had it. They've been in this long enough. They ought to know better. They ought to do right. And so it's my job to make it happen. You can't do it. When I let that go, man, it started getting fun again. I'm having the time of my life. I talked to other pastor friends. I was talking to a guy last night. He said, well, I know you're busy. I said, I am the least busy pastor you've ever seen in your life. He said, what do you mean? I said, I, I spend my time with the Lord. He said, oh, you've got to be running yourself ragged, taking care of people. I said, I don't take care of people. That's not my job. I try to teach other people to take care of each other. That's my job, to teach people to do the work of the ministry. It's not even my job to make sure that it gets done. I'm having the time of my life. He said, well, how is it that you're not busy? I said, I don't even go to the office anymore. I go every couple of weeks for a staff meeting. He said, what are your staff meetings like? I said, nobody has anything to say. (laughs) We sit there. I make a special trip to come to the office and nobody talks. They've learned well from me. Folks, it's not supposed to be a burden. And if you're trying to take people on as a project... You're going to get weighed down. Only God can change people. Only God can change us. But here's what I have found. I found that when I let go of trying to do it myself, it becomes a whole lot easier to pray for people. There are things that I've I've talked to people about. I've had a couple of situations like that just recently. I talked to somebody about something, and they said, no, 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 I don't want any part of that. I said, well, okay. A week later, they called and said, you know that thing you were talking about? I think I want to do that. I thought all the time, yeah, I knew you would. Didn't tell them. But you got to let people see things for themselves. Otherwise, they really don't see it. So we have a responsibility. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that we can be examples of Jesus. Just like he's gentle and patient with us, we can be patient and gentle with others. And we can bear their weaknesses. We can see their infirmities and see their wrong thinking about things. But we can still take the position of strong believers and help them along and encourage them to see them through. And then, Lord, we can rejoice when they do see the truth because we know that you've showed it to them. You're the one that's revealed the truth. You're the one that's caused them to grow. Lord, what a privilege it is to walk by the Spirit of God to know that we're being led into victory, even though, if, even if it's through tough places. We know the ultimate result is victory. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of peace and that you are the God of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.